Bible, would you go to Colossians chapter 3, please? When Jesus was asked about what is the most important command in the law, he answered with two things. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's Matthew 22, 37-40. So let me ask you, how important do those things sound to you if Jesus said they're the most important commands in the law? You can give them a pretty high rating? Yeah, okay. How important is it that you love God with everything you've got? Obviously, that's a big deal. To many of us, as the new year begins, we're already thinking about how is it that I can love God best? And there's a lot of people doing a lot of things, joining those, those new Bible in a year reading plans or whatever. There's all kinds of good stuff going on for people to say, I'm going to love God really well in 2016. And I can tell you, that's great. But loving God is not the only commandment that Jesus cited when he was asked what's most important. He said that loving our neighbors like we love ourselves, is a central summary of a lot of the law of God. There was another situation in which Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That was John 13, 34, and 35. But Jesus lets us know it is critical for us, for believers, that our lives be marked by love for one another. And those marks demonstrate to the world around us the truthfulness and the sincerity of our faith. Something about the way we deal with each other should set us apart from the world. Our treatment of each other should be a witness to the world to the truth of Christ. And this concept is central to the, the text that God has placed before us as 2016 begins. By the grace of God, we finally return our minds to the, the study of the letter of Paul to the Colossians. And before we dive in and see an important section on how we can fulfill God's commands to look like Jesus by loving each other, let's take a minute to remember where we've been because does it feel like it's been a long time since we've been in Colossians? kind of does. That whole Christmas thing takes a lot out of a guy. So, here we go. The book of Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Asia Minor while Paul himself was in prison. Paul never spent any extended time with the church at Colossae, and he was not the church planter. He was not the founder of the church at Colossae. There was a man named Epaphras who took the gospel to Colossae, and Epaphras brought reports from the Colossians to Paul. In chapter 1, Paul greeted the church and he shared with them his deep concern for their well-being. He, he reminded them time after time of the simple message of our salvation in Jesus. Paul showed that we are all sinners in danger of facing the judgment of God. But he taught that those who have come to faith in Christ have been rescued by Jesus and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Savior. In chapters 1 and 2, we also saw that Paul wanted to protect the Colossians from some dangerous ways of thinking that seemed to be seeping into the mindset of the believers there. Paul emphasized the deity and the supremacy of Christ. He, he might have been showing us there that, 
there were some false teachers in and around Colossae who were pulling people away from a high view of Jesus. Paul also warned against legalism, which is the idea that we're made right with God by obeying the rules. He warned against mysticism, the idea that believers need some sort of extra spiritual experience to really get to the higher level of Christianity. He warned against moralism, the the creation of rules that are more strict than the rules God made. And as we entered into chapter 3, Paul began to argue that our focus needs to be not on man-made rules and stuff like that. Our focus needs to be on Christ. And our minds need to be set on things above. In verses 1 through 4, he reminded us that we are hidden with Christ in God if we have been made alive with Christ. From verses 5 to 12, a new section kind of begins as Paul instructs believers to begin living differently in order to have their lives match the truth of their salvation. From verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, Paul called the believers to put off certain habits, certain sinful habits, We're supposed to take them off like dirty clothes. He commanded Christians to put off all forms of sexual immorality, which is an immorality fed by the greedy desire to be your own God. He challenged us to put off all forms of sinful anger, which lead to cruelty and evil actions. Paul ordered the Christians in Colossae to put off lying to get rid of ethnic and class distinctions. And then in the last message that we studied in this book, we saw that alternative commands began to come. Because God doesn't just tell you no, no, no all the time. When God instructs us to remove something from our lives, he also commands us to put on something that is the righteous alternative. So if you're supposed to take off your sinful actions and attitudes like dirty clothes, you're supposed to clothe yourself in the glorious attributes of the Lord Jesus, like compassionate hearts and kindness. Humility, meekness, and patience. God said to us that he sees his rescued children as holy ones, chosen ones, beloved ones. And we're supposed to live in the reality of who God says we are. So that's where we've been. And now that we know where we've been, let's move forward. We're still in the section of the book that says that since God rescued you, you're supposed to put off sinfulness and you're supposed to dress your life in the attributes of Christ. Put on Jesus. So let's find ways to put on Jesus in our lives. And if you're a note taker, because some of you are, get ready for three points here to help us. Three points this morning. One, two, three. got to get my fingers right. I said three and I held up one finger and that felt awkward to me. You're not paying attention anyway, are you? Doesn't take long in the new year, does it? Okay. Point number one, display Christ's grace to each other. Display Christ's grace to each other. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Living in the real world often stinks. Isn't it true? Be honest. 
Y'all don't ever feel like it stinks to live in the real world. Wouldn't it be nice if once we came to Jesus and found ourselves forgiven of our sins, that we also found it easy to live out the Christian life in obedience to the commands of God, right? God says, love each other. No problem, God. I'm just going to love. Does that work for you? Not as much as you'd like, right? Truth is, there is a reason this command that we just read has to be given. Because loving each other is not always easy. Now, Christmas just passed. I feel, therefore, that it's appropriate to illustrate this with food. Some people, you know, are like Christmas cookies. They're easy to love. You're always glad when they're around. You miss them when they're gone. Right? Other people are more like tofu or kale. Maybe they're good for you. But do you really want them in your house? Let's admit it. Oh, hush. Truth is, truth is, even in the room, perhaps with you this morning, is a person that just grates on your nerves. Now, don't look around right now. It's not safe. God knew, however, that we would rub each other raw from time to time. And that's why, in the middle of commands about putting on the attributes of Jesus, God says, get this, bear with one another. Why is this command here? Because there are some people, folks, that you are going to have to bear with, which means put up with, tolerate, just grit your teeth and bear them. This doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Now, this command does not apply to the people that are easy for you to handle. This command is present in order to help you and me to remember that we are to love those who are hard to love in the same way that we're supposed to love those who are easy to love. So let me ask you, is bearing with people an attribute of Jesus? Because I said we're putting on the attributes of Jesus here, right? I would guess that bearing with others is an attribute of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Lord God in the flesh. Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He is not nearly as prickly as I get when around somebody who bugs me. But how much tolerance do you think Jesus had to exercise around his disciples? Let's think for a minute, shall we? Consider the time that John and James, the noisiest, most boastful disciples, sent their mother that's right, their mommy, to Jesus to ask a favor. They wanted her to get Jesus to agree that in his kingdom to come, John and James could sit in the two seats of highest honor. Come on, Ma. Get him to give us the cushiest job in the kingdom. Jesus kept loving them. These same two disciples, by the way, also once looked at a town that didn't welcome Jesus, and they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on them? I imagine the world-class eye roll that that question deserved from the God of the universe as he looked at them and said, no, guys, I've got this. Jesus bore with them. Or how about the time that Jesus was worn out from a long day of ministry? Because preaching can take a lot more out of a guy than you might think if you've never done it. So the guys, they get in a boat to go across the lake. Now, remember, Jesus is God, right? His disciples know this at some level. 
Jesus is clearly being taken care of by God the Father. God's plan is not going to be thwarted. And so Jesus, he lays down in, in the boat, gets on a cushion, starts taking a nap. A storm comes, and what do the disciples do? They wake Jesus up from his nap, screaming, We're all going to die! Let me ask you, how do you like it when somebody wakes you up for a non-issue? Jesus calmed the storm and kept loving his disciples. He bore with them. Or how about this one? There was a time that Jesus told his disciples, Guys, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to die. See, Jesus let his disciples in on the ultimate plan of God. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and there the Jews, his own people, were going to turn against him, hand him over to the Romans, and he was going to be crucified. Jesus was doing this not because of anything wrong he had done, but in order to let himself suffer the wrath of God for the sinful children of God that he was going to rescue. Jesus was about to go through hell. And after Jesus told his disciples all this, the next thing that they did, the very next thing that they did, was to get into an argument about which one of them is the most important person. (laughs) And Jesus kept loving them. He bore with them. So, Would you agree with me that bearing with each other is Christian? If Jesus, the perfect one, could bear with imperfect disciples, how much more should you and I, who all have our own flaws, be able to tolerate the flaws of others? Guys, give others the grace of Jesus by bearing with each other. But now, sometimes the need to display Christ's grace is greater than just bearing with somebody who annoys you. Sometimes in the church, you're going to find that people actually wrong you. It may be by words they say to you or about you. It may be by things they do or that they refuse to do. It may be accidental. It may be on purpose. But people are going to let you down. And if you don't think that any Christian will ever let you down, please wake up and start living in the real world. We are flawed people. We are frail people. We mess things up and we will hurt each other. And when we fail each other, God says forgive. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, forgiveness, the word there for forgive is a word that really means a gift of grace. To forgive somebody is to see somebody who is morally in your debt because of something they did or didn't do. And what you do is you release them from that debt. It is, it's you letting them know that because they have repented, because they see what they did and they're sad about it, whatever, you're no longer holding them accountable to you for the wrong that they've done you. You are foregoing your perceived right to hurt them back for how they hurt you. Does that make sense to you, how forgiveness works? Because think about it. If somebody does something to you, don't you automatically feel that you have the right to do something back? 
You get me a little, I get you a little. Forgiveness is to forego your right to get them a little. God wants us to think about Jesus when we think about forgiving others because, you see, we've all really sinned against God. And our sin against God has earned every one of us a just punishment from God. Hell forever. But God chose to forgive every single person who would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus for mercy. And any person who says to God that they've been wrong in how they've lived and thought, who tells God that they want Him to be in charge of their life and decisions from now on, who, who believes in the person and work of Jesus as their only hope of salvation, who asks Jesus for mercy, that kind of person is forgiven by God. God foregoes the punishment that He otherwise should pour out on them. He puts that punishment away and never threatens us with it again. He puts it away. He lets go of His right to send us to hell And instead, he brings us into fellowship with him. And you and I are supposed to forgive like that. When other people hurt us, we are to be eager to let go of the hurt and to let go of any semblance of the thinking that we're better than them. We should want to let go of our grievances. And we should be willing to relate to those who have hurt us as best as our lives will allow. Now, I admit to you that this is a complicated and emotional issue. We studied this topic together for weeks in Sunday school as we worked through Chris Braun's excellent book, Unpacking Forgiveness. And I can't summarize to you everything we learned in those lessons in just a few minutes here this morning, but let me remind us of a couple things. Forgiveness is a transaction. When a person is willing to show repentance even if that repentance is imperfect. Because remember, how perfect is your repentance? Anybody want to say, my repentance toward God has been absolutely perfect. The moment I turned from my sin, I never picked it up again. If you say that, you are really messed up in the head. But even if someone's repentance toward you is imperfect, we are to be eager to grant them forgiveness. We want to look like Jesus as we eagerly free others of the moral and emotional debts we think that they owe us. Now, interestingly, forgiveness cannot be something we automatically do. We don't forgive others as an an internal solo move that we do by ourselves, right? Even though we acknowledge before God, 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 I'm not better than them. God, I'm, I'm 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 not better than them. I'm not worthy where they're unworthy. I'm not holy where they're unholy. We tell God, God, I'm guilty too. I get it. But we don't look at somebody who hurts us and who says, I would do it again, and then grant them forgiveness, saying, oh, I don't care if you don't care that you did it. I just want you to know I forgive you. God never calls us to do that. Jesus doesn't save anybody apart from repentance. And for us to say that we forgive an unrepentant person is for us to pervert the picture of the gospel that forgiveness is supposed to paint. But, like Jesus, the moment a person seeks forgiveness and repentance, we eagerly and joyfully grant it. Now, add to this discussion the complication that comes from issues that aren't sin issues, Issues that maybe don't require a confrontation. And you see that this stuff takes a lot of wisdom. It gets complicated. 
Because there are going to be times that people in the body are going to offend you, but the offense that they give you, maybe it's not in keeping with the pattern of their character. Somebody doesn't invite you to a party. Somebody doesn't talk to you when you want them to. Somebody hurts your feelings a little with a sarcastic barb, but they don't do it all the time. Do you confront them every single time and work through the forgiveness process? Or do you let it go and get over it? And guys, I wish I could tell you, but I can't. This requires wisdom. This requires the Holy Spirit in your life to help you know the difference between, you know what, I just need to get over it and... This is something that really, out of my love for them, I've got to confront them with. But when you forgive, or when you decide to let something go, you really got to let it go. Jay Adams, the popular Christian counseling teacher, biblical counseling instructor, he defines forgiveness as promising another person, making a commitment to them, that you're not going to bring up their sin again to them, to yourself, or to others. What does he mean? He says, by, by forgiving somebody, you say to them, I'm not going to throw this up in your face. I'm not going to try to keep the moral high ground over you by saying, remember what you did to me? I forgave you, but do you remember what you did? You don't do that to people. You don't use what you remember about them against them to hurt them in the future. But you also don't bring it up to yourself. You don't, you don't let yourself dwell on another person's failures and poison your heart toward them. You've got to put it away. When it pops back up, you battle it down again. But also, you don't bring it up to others. You don't spread what they did around in order to, in order to poison the minds of others against them. And this still requires common sense and it requires wisdom because you've got to be willing to use the truth of the past to help protect a person from future sin or maybe to protect others in danger. You, 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 don't, you don't hide someone's sin if you see them about to do it to somebody else. Do you guys see how much wisdom this requires? Forgiveness ain't easy. Well, without digging deeper this morning, here's what God wants us to learn. We are to display Christ's grace to each other. And that means that we bear with those who bug us. And it means that we are quick to offer and grant forgiveness to those who sin against us. It means, and this might be something you want to pray for, it means having a nature that leans more quickly toward letting an offense go than toward fighting every battle. It means assuming the best of others just like you want others to assume the best of you. Right? Have you ever noticed when you do something stupid that you always think people should understand why you did it? You really want them to give you the benefit of the doubt. No, I would never do that on purpose. But have you ever noticed when somebody does something stupid in front of you, how, how eager you are, if you're not careful, to assume they had to do it on purpose, no matter what they say? Lean toward giving others the benefit of the doubt until there's no possibility to do otherwise. What this all means is we put on the attributes of Jesus to cover our lives, including being gracious and forgiving toward others. That's how you put on Jesus. Second point, love each other and build unity. Love each other and build unity. Look at 14 to 15a. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which in, in you indeed were called, to which indeed you were called in one body. So keep in mind the picture here. We've referred to this a couple of times already. God commands us to take off like dirty clothes attributes that dishonor God. And he calls us to put on like clean clothes the things that make us look like Jesus. Well, here we see the garment that covers all the stuff we ought to put on. The outer cloak or the belt, right? Like a belt that holds it all together. We are to put on love. We saw this from Jesus' words at the beginning of the message, right? The two greatest commands that exist are to love God with everything you got and to love other people. Jesus commands the church to show the world that we're his disciples. How is the world going to know we're Jesus' disciples according to Jesus? Tell me. By we, us loving each other, right? If you and I love each other the right way, the world's going to believe that we're, deci- we're disciples of Jesus. Now, we know this is important stuff. So here's the question. What in the world is love? Biblically, it's a lot more than our culture would present. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Now, love contains a feeling, but it is far bigger than having a warm, mushy, happy feeling about another person. Love is not something you fall into, out of, on top of, you don't trip over it. That's not what love is. And I don't have time to prove all of this to you this morning, but let me give you a biblical understanding of love. Love is a deep commitment to another's good. Love is a choice that you will do another person good even if it costs you. In Romans 5.8, Paul said, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, does that sound like something God fell into? You don't whoopsie slip and fall and say, You know, I'm just going to give my son for these people. That's not an emotion. It's not a fall into, out of sort of thing. It was a commitment on God's part. What was God's love for us? It was God's commitment to rescue us from our sins, to do us good, even though that rescue would cost God dearly. Out of love for us, God rescues us, He teaches us, He provides for us, He chastises us when we sin, He leads us into righteousness. God's love does us good. God's love never seeks to do us harm. Even when God, for our good, lets us go through hardships, he's still loving us. So what happens when we in the church decide that we are first and foremost committed to God, and then we are committed next to each other's good? What happens is we live a life together that looks different than anything the world has ever seen. In fact, love for each other helps us to bear with each other and helps us to forgive each other. And it'll help us live in fellowship and it'll help us live in unity. Now, interestingly, verse 15, the command is to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. We are to live at peace with each other, living in the peace brought by the Lord Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? He made peace between us and God through his work of reconciliation. And now he says to you and me that we are to let the very same peace, that very same peace and grace and forgiveness, that's supposed to mark our lives. 
with each other. The Greek word there behind the word rule, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, it's a, it's a word that points to a judge or an umpire. The command could be that we are to let the peace of Christ be our judge or our umpire in all of our affairs in the church. Can you imagine if that was what you were thinking all the time? We are to live with each other in such a way that we let peace be the arbitrating standard for how we treat each other. So, think about this. When you choose an action to take, ask yourself, will this promote peace in the body? Think about how that question would change your actions. I mean, the very moment you decide that you want to let somebody have it because they are bugging the snot out of you, Here comes that question about the peace of Christ. And it helps you to bear with them. The moment you want to get back at somebody for hurting you, or or the moment you want to gossip about somebody and their craziness to others, the umpire of the peace of God blows the whistle and calls a foul and tells us to get back on the path of love and grace. Again, it doesn't mean you never say anything, but it means that at the end of the day, you let your conversations lead you to where can I promote peace? Where can I promote goodness? Where can I better tolerate? Where can I better love? How can I see the good in someone that's driving me up a wall? I'm just so glad you guys will never have to think that about me. That is not funny. (laughs) Oh, it'll be me. Don't you worry. But the peace, if you let that judge of peace blow the whistle on you, say, wait a minute. The way you're thinking about your poor, sweet pastor who clearly didn't mean it, that's not promoting peace. If that rules in your hearts, man, does the church look better. Right? There will, of course, be times when peace cannot be the final judge. Paul's not here saying that we compromise the gospel or the word of God out of a supposed peace. We saw that back in chapter 2. Paul was clear the Colossians are not supposed to put up with people who promote unbiblical legalism or mysticism or moralism. We do battle when the gospel is at stake. We will stand shoulder to shoulder and we will fight against those who would oppose the gospel. But in our general church lives, peace should be the the major ruling principle for how we live. We wrap ourselves up in the love of Christ. We love each other. We build unity. Third point. Develop an attitude of gratitude that rhymes, and I didn't even mean for it to. Look at verse 15, the last one. Here's a command. You guys are going to need your scholar caps on to understand it, I'm sure. Here's what it says. And be thankful. That's it. Okay, it doesn't really require that whole scholarliness. Here, at the end of the thing, when Paul commands us to do the things that make us look like Jesus, he brings in a call to thanksgiving. Something about gratitude should permeate our Christian minds. Why be thankful? Maybe the gospel will give you an answer. We're sinners. We deserve hell. God chose to rescue us, not because of any good that we did, not because of paying him back, not because of any good thought that we thought. For every single person who's ever come to Jesus, God has simply chosen to make them alive and adopt them into his family. We've been spared by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For God's glory alone. Is that not a good reason to be thankful? 
get this. God could have sent you to hell and would have been right to do so. He chose to wait to give you the gospel and to draw you to himself. Shouldn't that make you about the most thankful person in the world? Now think about how this fits into the previous discussion. God has told us to put on attributes, to put on Jesus, to make us look like Jesus. We are to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. We are to bear with each other. We're to forgive each other. We're to love each other. We're to live in unity. Here's a question. Do you guys believe that a bitter and ungrateful person could obey those commands? It's impossible. The only way to do what God calls us to do is to have a life filled with gratitude to God for the great mercy and grace he's shown us. And then, but when we, see, when we see that everything we have that's good is a gift from God, we can really easily share that grace with others. So Christians, the call in this little passage has been for you to put on the things that dress your life like Jesus. So as we finish, ask yourself some questions. Where do you need to change your spiritual clothes? God commands us to display Christ's grace to each other. Where do you need to be more patient with others? Where do you need to bear with others in their weaknesses? Whom do you need to forgive? To whom do you need to offer forgiveness? What little slights do you need to get over? Where do you need to move on? Think about how patient Jesus has been with you and offer that same mercy to others. Again, not everybody year-round is going to be a Christmas cookie. Some of them are going to be tofu. As I know you like tofu, Josiah. It's your mother's doing, and I still blame her. Um, But you know what? I think you get it, don't you? God also commands us to love each other and to build unity. So where do you harbor thoughts or have conversations that harm the unity of the local church? And guys, can I tell you? This is me too. I'm not, I'm not pretending I've got the high ground here. Okay? All of us have to examine ourselves. And what a great way to start 2016 to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful with my conversations. I'm going to be careful with my words. I'm going to be careful with my comments so that I don't promote disunity in the body. Let the peace of Christ and the commitment to the good of others in the body be your guide. Ask yourself, how can I bring about greater peace and stronger unity here in my church? And can I make one of those pastorly comments? You cannot bring about unity and peace and love in the body if you're not present with others in the body. You've got to be here and you've got to spend time with each other outside of here. If you don't, you can't do it. You can't obey the commands of God to love one another if you're not with one another. Now, that doesn't mean we're all with each other equally. You know, we don't have to set up a rotation or something. But, man, your lives have to be marked in 2016 as being poured out together. Make sense? Finally, God calls us to be thankful. So are you? What can you do in 2016 to develop an attitude of gratitude? How can you remind yourself to be thankful? 
Do you need to set a daily reminder on your smartphone? Right? Maybe it just says stop, right? Stop. Stop complaining. Stop whining. Stop fretting. Stop worrying. Start giving God thanks. If that's what you need to do, do it. And if you're here this morning or if you're listening to this online somehow and you've never turned your life over to Jesus, can I simply urge you today as the year starts to come to him and find his grace today? You cannot obey the commands of God I've just shared with you if you haven't first been made into a child of God through Christ's grace. We're sinners. God promises to forgive anybody who will come to Jesus in faith, who will decide, you know, God, I'd rather you rule my life than me rule my life. See, most of sin is me saying I get to be in charge. Repenting of sin is so often saying, God, you get to be in charge. I'll do things your way. God, you be the boss. So God says, look, come to him. Turn your life over to him. Confess to him that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus as the only hope for you to be saved. And ask God, God, please forgive me and change me. And he will. And if you need help to do this, come talk to me when the service is over and I will be happy to help you get started in a brand new life where you, like all the rest of us, can put on the attributes of Jesus for the glory of God and for our own joy. I'm going to bow together to pray as we wrap up. And then what I want us to do, Harold, I think we'll have have a song before we celebrate Lord's Supper, if that's okay. So you guys can come on up. Um, Let's pray together, though, first. And ask God to apply these words to our hearts. Father, we bow and we surely acknowledge we need your grace. We're not good on our own. We need you. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help my life and the lives of everybody here to be clothed in the attributes of Jesus. Help us to put on Jesus. Help us, Lord, to love each other. Help us to bear with each other, to forgive each other, to live in unity, to show off your glory. And Lord, even as we sing and think about those things, I would also ask you, Lord, to help our hearts to begin to prepare to celebrate Lord's Supper. It's communion with you and it's fellowship with each other. And help us to do it in such a way that honors you and promotes fellowship with each other. And if anybody here doesn't know you, if anybody here hasn't yet entrusted their soul to you, let them do it now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.